0: Hey everyone and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. Now this week we have accent colors being added as a Linux standard through the XDG desktop portal. So they will be accessible to any app that uses these portals on any toolkit. We have the release of the Linux kernel 6.5 with some nice performance improvements and we have a lot of details about what's being worked on for 6.6 which will come with even more performance improvements. We also have some more details about what's coming to GNOME 45 and future releases. We have another nightmarish privacy and censorship law coming from France. And we have a lot of other stuff to cover. So as always, all the links I use to make this show are in the show notes. And all the links to support the show are there as well. So, let's begin with Accent Colors. So, you might know that these are already supported in stuff like Ubuntu, Zorin OS, in elementary OS, in KD Plasma. Uh, I think Budgie might have them as well. Uh, the only big player, uh, yeah, even, even Cinnamon has them, but the big player that doesn't have them yet is Gnome. And for now, these Accent Colors are pretty much limited to apps shipped as packages. And they're pretty much limited to the desktop environment and the toolkit they use. But probably not for long, because accent colors have been added as a standard uh, to the XDG set of portals, uh, namely the XDG desktop portal. So if you don't really know what portals are, they're basically methods for applications uh, that are sandboxed, for example, Flatpak apps, to interact with various system components, like for example, opening a file picker without giving the application complete access to your file system. And so the XDG desktop portal basically handles all of this, but for interaction with your desktop. And so accent colors are now part of this set of portals. Uh, They will be available to every app that uses them and specifically Flatpak applications. So the way this will work is that uh, when you set an accent color in your desktop environment, this will also set an RGB value for this accent color as a new key. And that key is made available to any application through the portals, so they can now respect the system setting if they choose to do so. If no value is set, the app will just use either its default color or the default accent color for the toolkit they use. Uh, so for example, if your Flatpak app is a KDE app and it uses the Breeze theme, it will come probably with the Breeze blue. Uh, same for GNOME and Libadwaita. Now, for now, it doesn't look like this has been implemented by any specific desktop environment because, well, it's kind of brand new. But since the merge request and its inclusion in the portals was acknowledged by Gnome, by Budgie, by KDE, even by Cosmic and Elementary OS. I'm pretty sure we will all see all of this happening pretty soon in our desktops. Uh, probably since Gnome generally doesn't implement stuff that isn't related to a specific uh, either free desktop or XDG portal standard, they probably were waiting for this to add accent colors uh, to, to Gnome. So maybe we'll see them coming now. So these new XDG desktop portals don't just come with accent colors. They also come with a new clipboard portal. So applications can read from the clipboard safely without being able to access everything uh, with support for permissions. And there's also a new input capture portal for an app to declare that it wants to capture the mouse or the keyboard input, uh, like in a VM or a video game. Uh, This might seem kind of normal to you, like, yeah, of course, an app might want to use the clipboard or capture the mouse, but through the use of portals, it lets you set permissions, which means that you could say that this app, no, it doesn't have any right to read the clipboard because you don't trust it all that much, or it doesn't have any right to capture the keyboard input because you don't want it to to keylog stuff behind your back if you're not too sure about this. So it might limit functionality, but you have more control over it. That's what portals are all about. It gives the app access to normal specific features that every app already has when they are not packaged in a, in a sandboxed way like in a flatback or an app image uh, but it, give, it gives you the user control over how the app can have access to them. so it's great news for the accent colors uh, this is a really cool way to add some personality to your desktop i really want them in gnome because while the default theme is fine by my standards it's always better when you can tweak it a little and it will probably remove a lot of, uh, of user theming needs. Uh, probably a lot of users would be just content with putting like a, a, a purple or orange or green accent color instead of the default blue and would find that suitable and wouldn't need to theme things, which has been made way more complex uh, on GNOME uh, thanks to Libid Vita. Well, or because of FlipBudvita, depending on your position on that. Uh, So yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, I wish uh, this was already implemented in most desktop environments. I wish, like, for example, GNOME 45 had that implementation baked in. uh, Or or maybe maybe Plasma 6 still has time to add that. And for Budgie, we'll probably see a Budgie 10.9 version that implements that. And I would be surprised if uh, the first release of Cosmic didn't support that as well. And the other nice improvement is that even if you use, for example, a GNOME desktop, but you do want to run a few KDE apps through Flatpak, for example, now they will follow the same color that you set which means you won't have a GNOME desktop with an orange accent color and your KDE Flatpak app being all blue. It will also use the same orange accent color, which is really nice. It's some cross-platform look-alike stuff. Like the the toolkits will never look the same. A GNOME app will never look at home on KDE. Whatever theme you try and apply, it's not a KDE app. It won't have a menu bar. It's not going to look the same. But at least in terms of colors, it will match and it won't be so jarring. Now, this week we also had the release of the Linux Kernel 6.5 and it is a big update to the base of our Linux distributions. Uh, So first, uh, Ryzen CPUs using the Zen 2 architecture, so if I'm not mistaken, it's Ryzen 3000 uh, to Ryzen 5000 series CPUs and also some Threadripper models, Uh, they all should get better performance and better power efficiency thanks to the new p state driver that's been added that's something i talked about in previous episodes it basically lets your kernel and your system handle uh, the state of uh, idle and and like turning the power of various cores uh, to the minimum more often and, and just aligning this better with the use of your computer. This was already doable before 6.5, but you had to add a a flag to the kernel, a kernel parameter. Now you won't need to, it's enabled by default, it's stable enough. And so you should see better battery life on, uh, on Ryzen CPUs on your laptops, and also better performance for intensive workloads. Now for servers with a lot of CPUs, the kernel has been heavily tweaked. Uh, There's also the ability to initialize these processors in parallel instead of initializing them one by one. So this will reduce the time it takes to actually get all these CPUs online by a factor of 10. Now, that's not something you will notice on a desktop or laptop because you don't have enough CPUs or CPU cores. Uh, You generally only have like one CPU uh, with a lot of cores. But for servers that have a multi-CPU configuration, this will make it way faster uh, to boot those servers and initialize them, which is really cool. For Intel users, 12th gen and upwards, so basically all the hybrid architecture that has the efficiency cores and the performance cores, which aren't clocked at the same speed. Uh, So for these CPUs, the kernel should better handle a load balancing between these two type of cores. Uh, So again, you should see better power efficiency and better performance because the system will use efficiency cores when like, the task doesn't require a performance core and so you'll save on battery life and for higher workloads it will focus more on the performance cores and less on the efficiency cores so you will see better performance for that basically it's going to use these cores as they were intended better it already supported this architecture but this has been improved uh, the new kernel 6.5 also now supports AMD FreeSync by default and it also has the initial support for MIDI 2, i I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that uh, in English. Uh, MIDI, MIDI? not sure. And USB 4.0 V2 as well. Uh, support has been started on that. Uh, there's better support for RISC-V, which now handles ACPI. Well, the kernel now handles ACPI and vector extensions. Uh, Wi-Fi 7 also got some initial work as well. And the NVIDIA Shield devices are now supported by the mainline kernel. And on top of that, we have better support for Xbox controllers, especially in the Rumble department. A lot of other game controllers got improvements to that as well. The X4 format, which is the default for a lot of distros, uh, got faster direct I.O. BetterFS, another very popular file format, got some performance improvements. And the NTFS driver, which lets you mount a Windows disk inside of Linux, also got some love. So it should be more reliable and work better. So it's a big update to the Linux kernel. Uh, You should see it on most distributions that don't stick to an LTS kernel. Uh, So stuff like Fedora, like the Ubuntu non-LTS releases, stuff like any rolling release distro, basically. Probably Pop! OS will also ship that update uh, to most of their users because that's mainly what they do for now. You should see those improvements really soon. So I'm excited to see uh, those performance improvements, especially for like 12th gen Intel CPUs, because that's what I got on my laptops. Uh, and uh, for four Ryzen CPUs, I don't have them on, uh, on any laptop. Uh, well, I have an older one on the laptop. Maybe it's going to be supported. Like I think it's a 4000 something. So maybe it should work. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited to test those things and see how well this works. But after 6.5 will come 6.6, and there's also a lot of cool stuff planned for this one. Uh, first, developers managed to clean up the sysctl space, so basically all the features that let you control your system, and they're reducing the space used by each array by 64 bits, uh, bytes. Sorry, bytes, not bits. 64 bytes. Uh, when a new sentinel is launched. So from my understanding, but I might be wrong, uh, what they call a sentinel is basically something that monitors your system and that you can interact with with a system CDL. Not entirely sure, but I think that's that. And so each of those sentinels, when they were started, uh, it saved uh, 64 extra bytes of space just in case. And now they refactor that, so this space is no longer saved, which means that the build time of the kernel will be reduced and the RAM consumption of the kernel when it's loaded and your system is booting will also be lower. On top of that, we should get some nice improvements to I.O. performance. Uh, This is an improvement described by its developer as pretty juicy. And and pretty juicy does look indeed because it seems like it's like from from 4.5% faster up to 37% faster uh, depending on the type of I.O. operation. So depending on if you move a lot of small files or one big file at a time. So this will definitely speed up all the operations, manipulating, reading disk or writing to disk, which is really good. A new scheduler will also make its way to the kernel as well. It should bring back cluster scheduling for Intel hybrid CPU. So again, another improvements to 12th gen and higher. Uh, with efficiency cores and performance cores and they say that the new scheduler should generally improve the majority of workloads for most people. They are also warning that we could see some performance regressions which they are committed to fix as soon as they're identified. Obviously when you change the entire way your system handles your various CPU cores and attributes certain processes to certain cores, Obviously, you might improve some workflows and break some others because, well, there are plenty of workflows. Some that use a lot of cores, but benefit from using a lot of cores, but at lower frequencies. Some that need all the cores at the max frequency. Some that will perform better on just one core at at high frequency. It's very variable, uh, and this also factors in like the power consumption and, and the thermals. So it's a tricky thing to pull off. So obviously, some workflows might be impacted negatively, but it should still, if we believe the developers, which I do, uh, it should still be a major improvement for more, most people. Now, the kernel 6.6 should also introduce AMD Dynamic Boost. Plus, a manager for virtual addresses for GPUs, which should improve Vulkan support, uh, especially for gaming, and some more control over Intel graphics that could yield up to 15% better performance. And finally, the kernel 6.6 will also have additional protections against the weird behaviors that Nvidia implemented uh, in their proprietary drivers. Uh, The NVIDIA drivers, as you know, are proprietary and they do some weird stuff to be able to use GPL-only symbols in their drivers. Even though these drivers are not provided under the GPL and so they should not use GPL-only code because if they do, they sort of break the GPL. Uh, So the kernel will now be raising additional protections against that, which might mean that NVIDIA proprietary drivers won't work well on newer versions of the kernel until NVIDIA figures out a way to either do their own thing or break those protections again. Uh, We'll have to see. So maybe 6.6 will not be an update. NVIDIA users want to apply immediately. The last time those protections were put in place, I think it was a year and a half or two years ago, uh, NVIDIA actively uh, recommended that people do not use uh, the most recent kernels until they had actually figured out a way to bypass that. So we might be in a similar situation there. And we also already have some details about what might come to 6.7, especially better overclocking support for AMD GPUs. Uh, AMD is developing some new interfaces for overdrive, which is the name they give to the system features that let you overclock their GPUs. And it will let people develop tools which are graphical or otherwise to overclock their AMD GPUs. Now, as you know, AMD does not provide any of their own graphical tools on Linux uh, like they do on, on uh, Windows, uh, but still, they will at least provide the new interfaces that will let developers build stuff that manipulate uh, these uh, this overclocking uh, features. So these will let users change the fan curve, the target temperature, and the acoustic threshold for fans. So you will be able to really have fine-grained control over how much performance you want versus how much sound the fans will emit. It's pretty cool. They will only target RDNA 3 graphics and later though, so older GPUs will not benefit from that. So it's really exciting stuff uh, for 6.6 and for 6.7. Better performance, better support for a lot of stuff, better support for Vulkan. Really, really cool. It's really good to be a Linux user these days because like every single new version brings something really interesting That makes our hardware work even better, which delays the moment where you need to buy new hardware, which is really nice because stuff is getting very, very expensive these days. And now for our sponsored break. Uh, This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Thunderbird. And most of you probably already know about Thunderbird. uh, But for those who don't, it's an all-in-one suite that handles email, calendar, contacts, tasks, RSS feeds, and even chats. A Thunderbird recently received a big, big update, version 115, codenamed Supernova, with a full redesign of the application, which makes it easier than ever to set up your accounts and to be productive. Now, the interface is very customizable. You can either go with that supernova look, which is what they're what they're advising, with the new cards view for email, uh, higher density, well, lower density of the interface, so it's more legible, uh, tags view, a new folder view. But you can always go back to the previous view and the previous interface if you want. You can place the panels everywhere you want. You can change the density. You can change the view modes. Uh, you can toggle some panels on and off, you can add any button you want to the top bar. So after this update, Thunderbird became my email and calendar client of choice. Uh, I could not use the previous ones, the new one is really awesome, and that's the one I'm using uh, today. Also, it's fully open source, it's free of charge, and it is available for any Linux distro, for Windows, for Mac OS. So whether you used Thunderbird in the past before or not, uh, you can click the link in the show notes and you can give the new version a shot I can guarantee you will not regret it. It's really, really good. Okay, now we also have some more details about changes coming to GNOME. Uh, First, in GNOME 45, Nautilus, the file manager, will get a new look with a better-looking sidebar, the Places sidebar, where you have your bookmarks, your connected disk drives, uh, your CDs or DVDs, if you have that, your network storage, everything. So now this new sidebar will use the entire height of the window instead of stopping under the header bar. And it also gained a small title, which is places, because that's the places sidebar. Uh, the various indicators for file transfers or when you extract archives will also live in the top of the sidebar now. Uh, before, there were sandwiched between the search button and the various menus or view controls, uh, which made it a little harder to look, uh, well, to look for. You, you could see it because it was pulsating, so you knew it was there. But if you missed that little pulse initially, You might be wondering where your your file operation dialogue was, so now it's going to be separated in the Places sidebar, which sort of makes sense, I guess. I think it does look better, but it doesn't look like you're gaining extra height on your sidebar, because the title basically uses the same space as the header bar did. Uh, And it also reduces the available space for the Breadcrumbs and Path bar. Because that sidebar eats a little bit of the header bar space that you had previously. So the the forward and back button are now moved to the right of the sidebar instead of being over it. Well, uh, yeah, atop of it. And and so, yeah, I I don't think it's super optimized in terms of UI. Because if you navigate very long file path, if you go deep into a file structure, a folder structure, then you're going to see less of your path unless you make the window bigger. Which... Not sure it's such an interesting change. Like, yes, it does look nicer, but I'm not sure it helps with the UI and legibility. Uh, Next, the settings will also receive some love. Not in GNOME 45 specifically, though. Uh, They're going to fix a lot of UI consistency issues. They're going to port all the panels to the most recent GNOME Human Interface Guidelines, to the most recent LibAdvita widgets. Uh, Some stuff will land in GNOME 45, the new Privacy Hub, for example which basically just regroups a few options you already had, but that were disseminated throughout various panels. Uh, so you'll get the screen lock, the location, the file history, the camera and mic permissions for applications, stuff like that. It's nice to have that in the same place instead of hunting uh, through every category. Uh, and in GNOME 46, the settings will land a new system hub as well, and a new network and internet panel, which should be big reworks uh, of the current UI. I'm not expecting necessarily more options, but at least it will be easier to parse at a glance and to use. Uh, so that's cool stuff if you like settings, which I do. I sometimes just open the settings app to look at the options I might have missed or stuff I could like experiment with, which admittedly that goes pretty quickly in GNOME because, well, it doesn't have that many options out of the box. But it's cool to see that they are still trying to work out this. And it's interesting as well, because if you look at KDE and GNOME, you're seeing that every release, basically, they're messing with the settings. Uh, KDE spends a lot of time reworking, retooling, updating their settings pages. And GNOME does the same. Like virtually every release, there's a panel that changes uh, some options that are moved around. It's, it's like no desktop environment found a good way to present all their settings correctly and legibly uh, to users, which I find interesting because it's also the same on macOS and Windows, if you think about it. Uh, Like the Windows 8 settings were changed for Windows 10. They were also changed for Windows 11. On macOS, uh, the previous version introduced a new settings app, which is admittedly a lot worse than the previous one. And they're always messing around with where options are, how panels are placed, the icons... It's like no desktop or no operating system has found a good way to present all the system settings to the users. And I find that interesting. I don't have an answer to it, but I still think that it's really strange. Like, it's been a while since we've had settings for our operating systems. Why can't we just, like, find a good way to do it and, and stop messing with them? Now let's talk a little bit about France, uh, my country. Uh, In the series of my country sucks more and more each day, we now have a new internet censorship law called SREN, which is being fast-tracked through France's uh, parliament. It's basically a way to regulate online content, but not through content providers, but directly through DNS resolvers and web browsers. And these actors would be mandated to block websites directly. So for example, the French government could say, Oh, you know what? Uh, We think Wikipedia is a tool for for foreign propaganda. And so every web browser that wants to be distributed in France needs to block uh, Wikipedia. And so you can't even really bypass that yourself because it's the web browser that is legally obligated to not display the website. So even if you use like a VPN or something, You're going to receive the website and the web browser will know that and it's going to block it. Uh, Or even your DNS provider will say, nope, uh, you're not seeing that. So the DNS provider will probably be bypassed by the VPN because the DNS call you're making is for the VPN. uh, So it might not know what you're doing, but the web browser will definitely know. Uh, It's going to load the URL. So yeah, it's really bad and obviously experts think it's a very slippery slope that could have a lot of impacts on privacy and a lot of impacts on freedom of expression because any authoritarian government, which admittedly France's government is really turning into, uh, they could abuse this to prevent French citizens from accessing certain pieces of information, uh, of information, certain viewpoints. Uh, Certain opinions. And this would bypass most censorship evasion tools because the browser would just refuse to display the website. Now, Mozilla said that this was a huge problem, that they really do not want to conform to this law. They have an online petition that you can sign. I signed it myself. Uh, I would expect other browsers to follow suit as well. I don't see any web browser being like, oh yeah, we ship a normal version everywhere, but a really censored version in France because, yeah, we cave into that kind of demands. So they will probably want to block that, but I don't know if they have the strength to do it. Uh, In terms of privacy, it's also a problem because browsers could be pushed to collect more user data to be able to block those websites. And also, this bill is being fast-tracked through an accelerated procedure. It's something that our current French government has been doing a lot for every reform or, or law that is very unpopular and that people would generally not accept. Uh, they will they will fast-track them using every single article in the Constitution, combining all of these tools to make, like, the Parliament have, like, a week to decide on this and vote on this. Uh, so they can submit a lot of amendments, they can really say, hey, we should discuss this in more depth. No, you don't have time, you have to vote on this right now. Uh, they also use certain tools to force a vote, saying, you know what, this is accepted, Parliament doesn't even get to vote Uh, You can have a a motion to dismiss our government, but since our parliament is so divided, they never go through. Uh, So they basically have an instant win button for every law they want to pass. It's really, really bad. It is another nightmare law that opens the door to very dangerous internet censorship. And as always, it comes from a, a good place. Uh, Because yes, sure, you might want to block like super horrendous websites that carry complete misinformation or very dangerous uh, procedures like terrorist content or or pornography, well, pedopornography and stuff like that. Yes, you need to be able to block these. But the problem is there are no locks in place that define uh, what can be on the blacklist for the government. So as soon as they decide that, hey, you know what? We don't like like uh, we we don't like uh, climate change uh, talk uh, very much. We don't think climate change is real. We want to block that, or no, we don't want anybody to be able to have access to data related to abortions because we don't like that. Uh, we're gonna blacklist all of that. It's very dangerous if you don't have any checks in place. So it's a it's a very very dangerous law. I am very tired uh, of the way my country is handling all these things. I really hope this gets blocked by a parliament, but I have very little hope that this will be a case. Uh, If you're French or if you're not French, uh, go to the Mozilla petition. Uh, I I left a link to it in the show notes. Uh, And please sign it. I don't know if it's going to do anything because petitions rarely do, but it doesn't cost much. Well, at least if you think this law is bad, which you probably do. Okay, less scary news. Uh, Now on the hardware side of things. Intel made a big announcement about their future chips uh, coming out next year. They say it will handle double the work for the same amount of power used. Uh, Basically, what they're saying is that these new chips will have 240% better performance per watt than the current generation of chips, which is a huge leap forward. Now, the caveat is that we're talking about a data center chip, not a consumer chip. It's not like, uh, well, they're not called core i5s. They're just called i5s, i7s, or i3s, or i9s. Uh, So it's not like these core CPUs will get better overnight, but the data center chips will. And generally, improvements on these super high-powered, brutally powerful chips tend to make their way into consumer products a bit later. Uh, So the new chips are called Sierra Forest. And they will not be a full-on replacement for the current offerings. They will basically have two ranges and two architectures. Uh, They have Granite Rapids, which is like the continuation of the current data center chips focused on pure performance, uh, no matter the energy cost. And they will have the new Sierra Forest series, which are focused on energy efficiency. And so maybe at some point we'll see the same thing coming to consumer CPUs, well, they have that the, the lake architecture, uh, which is like for high performance. And we'll have the forest series uh, that is focused on more performance per watt instead of just pure brute performance. And it's, it looks like Intel is sort of losing the battle to AMD in data centers. So I guess that's their way of clawing their way back because not all data centers need pure brute extreme performance. Uh, Some actually need very little performance, but currently they don't really have chips specialized for that that use very little power. Uh, So maybe you could say, hey, you know what, instead of having three machines, we could just like put it all back in one and save some energy costs, which is probably a good thing uh, because like energy costs have risen drastically uh, this past year. I do hope that these improvements make their way to consumer products at some point, but I guess if they figured out a way to build a CPU that like, generates double the performance for the same energy consumption, they can probably like, slowly backport that to a more consumer-focused fo- chip. So I feel a lot of laptops uh, are currently over uh, these days in terms of CPUs. Like you see something made for, for just office and email, Uh, shipping with an i5 or even an i3 and that's generally a lot that that's too powerful for a lot of people uh you 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 can do with just a dual core chip that's like 1.5 or 2 gigahertz you don't need something that runs at 4 gigahertz with four cores uh, for basic office work and so having something that just can deliver way better battery life uh, and just a little less performance would be cool and I know Intel has a range that does that, but they're generally like very, very, very low powered. Like the N200 or the, the old Atom chips. Or, or I think they resurrected the Pentium brand as well for these kind of CPUs. But they're really, really weak. Uh, I think we need something in between. Like not everyone needs an i3 or an i5. You could have something in between that provides good performance. And maybe that's their answer to that. And they're starting with the data centers first and it's going to make their way uh, its way into consumer products later. Now we have a small little item uh, about Flatpak. Uh, the packaging format now supports Wayland's security context protocol. Uh, what this does is it allows any Wayland client to attach metadata to the connection it makes, uh, which means then the Wayland compositor can then restrict features that this sandboxed app has access to depending on that metadata. So basically a Wayland client could say, hey, you know what, these type of connections uh, to maybe, I don't know, these, these domains or these IPs or, or connections using a specific protocol uh, should probably be blocked. And so if the app provides said metadata, uh, Wayland could say, no, this, this does not go through. So it allows sandbox apps basically to be more secure. So Flatpak apps will now be able to provide this metadata and security policies will now be applied to them. It looks like Mutter, WLroots, and SmithA already support all of this, which is nice. And so it just brings better security for flat packs, which are generally already more secure than our regular old packages. The sandbox isn't perfect. Uh, some people poke a lot of holes through the sandbox to have full system access, and they basically defeat the sandbox. But... Like you still have some control over permissions and all, which you absolutely do not have with regular packaged apps. So it's nice to see that this uh, will be improved for internet connections as well. Now we also have some interesting information about Alma Linux. Uh, They continue to trade their own path in terms of not being a Red Hat Enterprise Linux clone anymore. So, you probably followed all this, like Red Hat restricted access to the source code used to build a specific version of Red Hat. You can still pick the right commits and packages from the CentOS stream repos, but it's a lot more work. And Alma Linux said, you know what? We don't want to do that. Uh, we're not going to be bug to bug, one to one compatible with Red Hat Enterprise Linux anymore. Uh, we're just going to be ABI compatible, which means that they're compatible with every app, but uh, they give themselves the freedom to fix various bugs and implement new stuff before Red Hat Enterprise Linux does it. Uh, So basically, by doing this, they sort of need to have the usual channels that Linux distros have access to. And so they added two new repositories, which are called Testing and Synergy. Now, the testing repo is relatively simple. It's for security updates that aren't yet approved by Red Hat, but that you could already get in Alma Linux beforehand if you want them without having to wait. Uh, It's basically the, we are free to ship what we want now repo, since they don't have to be bug for bug compatible. They can say, well, this security vulnerability or this little problem has been fixed upstream already. And so we're going to ship it to our customers without waiting for Red Hat uh, to actually include them in Red Hat Enterprise Linux, something that they could not have done if they wanted to be one-to-one compatible. They would have had to wait for Red Hat to ship this thing so they could ship it themselves. So it's an extra repo because some customers might want to stick as close to Red Hat Enterprise Linux as possible. And some customers might say, I'm using Alma Linux because I want like Red Hat, but a little bit more up to date. And so they're going to get that. And the second repo, the Synergy, Synergy, sorry, the Synergy repo uh, can contain any package that isn't in Red Hat Enterprise Linux or one of its EPEL repos. So from what I understand, EPEL is basically like the PPA system for Red Hat Enterprise Linux, but I think a little bit more official, like with more official support. Uh, So it's going to be the same thing, but for Alma Linux, for packages that aren't in any of these repos. Uh, Basically, the community can say, hey, we wish Alma Linux had a package for this app or this tool or I don't know, anything, a library. And Alma Linux will say, okay, well, we can build this package and maintain it if someone is up to the task and we'll include it in that Synergy repo. Uh, this will also, interestingly, be made available to other Red Hat Enterprise Linux compatible distros like Rocky Linux, Oracle Linux, or CentOS. Although whether they will want to make use of that is in uncertain because as with all external repos, it might ship newer versions of libraries that are needed, which means that it might break the full one-to-one compatibility with Red Hat Enterprise Linux. So this remains to be seen. Uh, Both of these repos, the testing and the Synergy ones, are already available. You can add them to AlmaLinux 8 or AlmaLinux 9 with just one command line. And you can also already add that Synergy repo to another Red Hat-compatible distro as well, if you want to. It's pretty cool stuff. And I think that that Synergy repo might end up being a very nice thing to extend the capabilities of many enterprise distros. If you're a pure, like, I run my business on this. I don't want to take any chances. Then probably you won't want it because, well, it's a community repo. Maybe you don't want to to have that. That is basically unsupported. Uh, But if you're doing this for your own server and like, you know, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, you don't want to pay the license. You're using a clone like, well, a former clone like Alma Linux. Uh, Maybe you want to be able to extend this and not be constrained by the limitations of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And it's focus on pure tested stability. And so this Synergy repo will be probably very useful uh, for people who deploy servers to various smaller customers, smaller businesses uh, for for specific applications or tools uh, to be made available. I think it has the potential to become pretty important in this part of the community. Okay, and now we're going to finish this episode with the gaming news. Uh, So first, as I reported last week, Roblox now supports Linux again through Wine. Uh, You could already do it, but through the beta channel, it wasn't well tested. You didn't really know if it might get your account banned or something. Probably not, but you didn't know. Uh, Now it's in the stable channel as well. So you can run uh, the Roblox client through Wine or with Vinegar, which is apparently a wrapper developed specifically to package Wine and the Roblox launchers with the right versions and everything. Uh, So you can just play Roblox by just unpacking this thing and running it. Uh, So... As I said previously, I never played Roblox, the game holds no appeal to me, but it looks pretty fun uh, for kids or for parents who want to play with their kids. Basically another kind of Minecraft with a lot of mini-games, it, it looks fun. then we also have some updates to the Steam Deck, uh, interesting ones. They don't add much for a lot of people, uh, they're version 3.4.9 and 3.4.10, but what they do is implement fixes for Starfield. Uh, 3.4.9 implements a fix for the GPU drivers to support Starfield and 3.4.10 also fixes another issue which basically you had a black screen when you launched the game for the first time when you launched Starfield for the first time and you had to click through that thing uh, using the touch screen to bypass it so they fixed that in a new stable release so when Starfield is actually out uh, in a few days it will be playable on the Steam Deck. There's no guarantee on the performance because we don't really have any tests of that. Valve probably does, uh, but we don't. So we don't know if it's going to be like verified or playable, if you're going to have a stable 30, 40, probably not 60 FPS at which details. But it's good that, yeah, this game will be supported on release because if not, they would not have published uh, these kind of updates to SteamOS directly and not as fast uh, if there was a lot more work to do for the game to run. So pretty cool. I definitely intend uh, to pick up Starfield as soon as it releases. I will probably play it more on my SteamOS console, on my TV with a controller, but it could be fun to take it on the go in bed and keep playing with the same save game on the on the Steam Deck. So I hope it works well. Uh, we'll see when it releases. And also we'll see how much space it uses because I'm expecting like 120 gigs or something, uh, much like Baldur's Gate 3. So we'll have to see. And finally, we also have improvements to Wayland support for Wine. Uh, The sixth part of that effort has now been submitted as a merge request to be included in Wine. And this part is a crucial one because it adds support for mouse events, uh, like uh, detecting cursor movement on which axis, at which speed, the cursor entering or leaving the window and also updating the cursor image as it hovers over elements in a window, something that is definitely very useful for video games because you don't want to play, for example, CSGO or CS2 uh, with a normal mouse pointer instead of the in-game, like, reticule uh, to aim your freaking weapon. Uh, So that's really good. The code is under review. There are apparently some issues to fix still. But it is a major step for Wine to not need X Wayland anymore. And if you're wondering why that's important, X Wayland works. You can play probably every game uh, that runs on X11 on Linux on Wayland through X Wayland. But there's a performance hit because you're not only running the Wayland compositor, but you're also running an X server on top of that. So it's gonna use a little bit more RAM, a little bit more CPU. Uh, it's not as efficient as running the game straight through Wayland. And since most games on Linux run through Wine or or Proton, which is based on Wine, having native Wayland support in Wine will mean better performance playing on Wayland, uh, playing video games on Wayland, and probably better performance than on X11, because Wayland is a more efficient protocol as well, to display stuff. It's way more modern in terms of how it handles graphics and how it handles the display buffer, how it draws stuff on screen, so it's probably going to be a big improvement when it lands. It probably won't land before 2024 because it needs a lot of testing, and even with this sixth part, it's not complete, but it's going to be very interesting to have like some performance comparisons, uh, playing a game natively, on Wayland, playing it with X Wayland, or playing it on X11. I'm pretty sure Foronix will do big benchmarks of that once it's ready to be used. So, this will conclude uh, this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want more details about any of the stuff I talked about here, you can check the show notes. I have links to every article I used. If you want to check uh, the new version of Thunderbird, which is the sponsor of this episode, there's also a link in the show notes. And if you want to support the podcast, uh, you also will find a lot of links in the show notes as well. So thanks for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!